And now remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen carefully to the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth and we can stand on it with assurance. Help us to understand it and to go out from here as doers of your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Before I jump into the sermon, I want to give you just a little bit of an overview of what we're going to be doing in the upcoming weeks and months as sermons go. For the next handful of weeks, I'm going to preach a sermon series on prayer, specifically Paul's prayers. We're going to look at how Paul prayed, what his priorities in prayer were, and we're going to try to let that shape us and our prayers. So we're going to do that uh, right up to Easter. And then after Easter, some point after Easter, a week or two after Easter, I'm going to jump into a series on the Gospel of John that I'm really looking forward to. So we'll spend a a lot of time in the fourth Gospel over the next year or so. Of course, once we get to Advent and Christmas, we'll take a break and do some thematic sermons uh, on Advent and Christmas themes. But for the most part, we're going to be in the book of John after Easter and after we finish this series on prayer. What is your most urgent need? What do you need more than anything in the world? The one thing. 
your greatest need is to know God better. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that his whole reason really for existing is that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what it all comes down to. That's the bottom line. Can you think of anything that you need more than to know Christ, to know God in Christ? Now, the greatest commandment is to love God, right? But before you can love God, you must know God. Before you can love God, God God must make himself known to you so that you know him. You can only love God to the extent that you know God. And on Judgment Day, he will say to some that he did not know them. There are a lot of people in love with the God of their own creation, the God that they made in their own image, but they do not love the God of Scripture because they do not know him. They only know their own God. One Christian author got it right when he said, our one need is to know Jesus better. The one cure for all our feebleness fallenness is to look to him on the throne of heaven and really claim the heavenly gifts, the heavenly life he waits to impart End quote. This is a very sound application of John four and Colossians three and other passages. Above all, we need to know Jesus and the heavenly eternal life that only Jesus can give. Paul's main prayer for the Philippians in Philippians 1, 9 is that their love would grow in knowledge and discernment. One translation says knowledge and depth of insight. The knowledge Paul is talking about here is not a theoretical, abstract knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge, a personal knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Every one of us has the same greatest need. More than anything else, you and I need to know God better. We, we need a deeper understanding of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are at the center of reality. Your greatest need is to grow in your understanding of your awareness of God's goodness and His character and His love, His forgiveness, His forgiveness in Christ, His presence in His Spirit. Your greatest need is to seek God and to find the reward that awaits those who seek him earnestly, the book of Hebrews says. In short, your greatest need is to know Jesus better. Mine too. But is it your greatest desire in your heart right now? Is this your greatest desire? Is your greatest need, is it your greatest want? Is it what you hunger and thirst for More than anything else. Even more than physical nourishment. Over the next month or so, as I said, we're going to talk about Paul's priorities in prayer. And we're going to see that he understood what his greatest need was. And he understood what the greatest need of his sheep was. We're going to see that Paul was a man of prayer, a minister of prayer. Really, this sermon series is directed to me first. Am I a man of prayer, a shepherd of prayer, an elder of prayer? 
See, we think of Paul as this great theologian because he was. He certainly was. But he was also just as much a great man of prayer. In fact, the only reason he was a great theologian is because he was a great prayer. Paul knew Jesus and his spirit in a very real and personal way. Paul had a close relationship with God. And in his letters, we see this coming out. In his letters to the churches, Paul lets us see into his prayer life. We get to read what Pastor Paul prayed about. How he prayed for his people. Gives us a picture into his priorities. And one of the main things I want us to do in this series is to learn the importance of praying through Scripture. Praying with an open Bible. The most important thing you can do for your prayers is to ground them in Scripture, not just in Paul, in the whole Bible. Your times of individual prayer should not just be with you and your eyes closed. There's time for that. They should be you talking to God with an open Bible in front of you. In studying Paul's prayers, we're not just going to learn what we're supposed to pray for. We're going to learn how to use Bible passages As the basis of our prayers. Because you need to be reading with an open. Praying with an open Bible. There's power in praying through the words that God has inspired. Praying your way through the book of Ephesians. Through the book of Psalms or Proverbs. Christians should not just read scripture. They should pray scripture. Or read it prayerfully. Christians should not just pray to God. They should pray scripture back to God. Those two things go together. And so one of the ongoing applications that I'm going to come back to again and again will be it will be my encouragement to you to use God's word as the springboard or the anchor of your prayers. Allow the Bible to shape your prayers in their form and in their content. And when you do, when you do this. Rewards await you. The Bible will breathe life into your prayers. If your prayers are stagnant, it's probably because you are running low on the living and active word of God in your prayers. So after we meditate, after we meditate on 2 Corinthians 1 today, you can go home this week, today, and, and pray through this passage, this passage praying its themes. It's doctrines. Personalize it. Use it as a template. Let the words and ideas of this passage dominate the content of your prayer. Let Paul's concepts and categories control your prayers. As you learn to do this, you'll find that God's word, together with God's spirit, who inspired the word and who is in you as you pray, will show you things to pray for that, you never would have thought of otherwise. As you learn to pray this way, you'll become more intimate with God. You'll get to know Him better through His Word. And I dare say you'll have more fun in prayer. You'll see more prayers answered. Well, our sermon text is Second Thessalonians 1. Before we walk through the passage, look at verse 11. Paul says, to this end... We always pray for you. To what end? Another translation could be that for this goal, we pray for you. What's the goal? What is 
Paul's goal for the Thessalonian believers. Well, Paul is referring to the previous eight verses, verses 3 to 10 in that chapter. And they provide the framework that controls Paul's prayers. Why he prayed what he prayed. And in verses 3 to 10, we see two dominant principles at work. The first principle is that Paul gives thanks for the grace of God at work in believers. The second principle is that Paul is confident that Jesus will come back to earth in judgment to set everything right. So we're going to look at those two principles. First, when Paul gives thanks for the grace of God at work in believers. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. For Paul, gratitude is fundamental. Paul Giving thanks dominates Paul's life. It dominates his letters. It dominates his prayers. It dominates his exhortation many times. And for what does Paul give thanks? He doesn't just give generic thanks. He gets specific. He, he gives specific thank, thanks for Specific things. But before we dig in and look at the details about what he's giving thanks for, I want us to think about what we give thanks for. What dominates your prayers of thanksgiving? What do you give thanks for? Does your thanksgiving focus primarily on material well-being, physical comfort? Do you give God thanks mostly for food and health? and safety, and financial security, and all the other things that make us comfortable and happy. We give thanks to God for those things, those good things that we value the very most. If you mostly give thanks for the material and physical well-being of you and your family, then the good things that you value most are the, are the material and physical well-being of you and your family. And I admit that that is a high priority. It should be. And I'm not saying that you should stop giving thanks for those things. Those are wonderful blessings. You should not give thanks for them any less than you are now. I'm not encouraging that at all. The Bible teaches over and over that you should give thanks for all of those things. They are blessings from God, gifts from his hand. However, it is worth pointing out that in the New Testament, we don't see Paul actually giving thanks for those things, and yet we see him giving thanks all the time. He doesn't give thanks for the things that we habitually cherish. And we need to learn from that. Maybe we're imbalanced. Part of the reason we don't see Paul giving thanks for those type of things is that he didn't have much of it, did he? He often did not have material or physical well-being. He often did not have plenty of food or safety or health or comfort. And yet he still gave thanks continually, to use his word, 
all the time in every circumstance, to use his phrase. His heart of gratitude ran deep. It, it had to because he didn't have things right on the surface to give thankful to give thanks for, did he? And so he says in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret to being content is always being thankful. A thankful heart is a content and joyful heart. And when we look at what Paul does give thanks for, we see his priorities, his spiritual priorities. We see what is near and dear to his heart. He gives thanks for the grace of God at work in believers. He gives thanks for three things in particular. First, Paul gives thanks for their faith because it's growing, for their growing faith. Paul says in verse 3 that he gives thanks to God for them because their faith is growing more and more. That's what gets Paul excited. The Thessalonians are not satisfied with the faith that they had yesterday. They are stretching upward in spiritual maturity. And Paul's heart overflows with gratitude for this, for this reality. Second, Paul gives thanks that their love is increasing. And Paul does not have in mind here their growing love for God primarily. I'm sure he's thankful for that too. But look what he says in verse 3. He's specifically thankful that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul is not talking about a sentimental love that resides in the heart but never really gets out to do anything, to do work. He's talking about practical love, sacrificial love, love that serves, love that dies, love that suffers alongside other suffering brothers and sisters, which was a reality in Thessalonica, love that covers over wrongs, love that gives the benefit of the doubt, Love that breaks down social and economic barriers. Love that transcends race and families and levels of education. This is the kind of love that Paul lived out and that he exhorted people to do. But it's fair to ask at this point, why is Paul so thankful that their love for one another is increasing? Why is this such a high priority for Paul? It's because Paul knows that if their love is growing, if their love is abounding and increasing, it's evidence of what? That they belong to Jesus. John 13, Jesus says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, that you belong to me, that you're followers of me, if you do what? Have love one for another. When Christians love one another, when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell in unity, despite differences, despite disagreements, when we do that, our love is a sign that God's grace is at work among us. It's the sign. 
Paul is struck by the growing love of the of the Thessalonian Christians. He knows that their love is the work of God's grace alone. And so he directs his gratitude to God alone. Third, Paul gives thanks that they are enduring trials with steadfastness and faith. Now look at verse 4 again. It doesn't explicitly say that Paul offers thanks to God for their faithful endurance in the face of trials. The text actually says that Paul boasts to other churches about their endurance. He says, I boast about you among the churches of God. What's he boast about? Your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul's boasting must be seen here as an expression of gratitude and gratitude to God. He's deeply thankful that the believers in Thessalonica had become spiritually strong enough to to persevere under trial. Remember last week we learned that Paul loves these Thessalonian Christians the way a mother, a nursing mother, loves her baby, the way a father loves his children. And so as he sees this, he is thankful and he can't help but boast to the other churches. He's not boasting in his work as a church planner. He's not boasting in what the Thessalonians have done in their own strength. No, nothing like that. He is boasting in God. Anytime you see Paul boasting, he's boasting in the Lord, not in himself and not even in anyone else. Ultimately, he's boasting in what the Lord has done. It's it's as if Paul is saying to these other churches, hey, have you noticed how powerfully the grace of God is at work in these Thessalonian believers? Their steadfastness and their faithfulness in persecution is remarkable. It's worthy of imitation. Their faith, their faith in the midst of these afflictions from their fellow countrymen is a compelling testimony to you of God's grace. What an example they are, Paul says. What an encouragement they are. See, Paul's boasting is nothing other than praise and thanksgiving to God expressed in the presence of these other churches. And so what do you thank God for? We can do a diagnostic on ourselves at this point. What do you boast about? What do you get excited about? Maybe enough to write a letter about, to write home about. What do you go around talking about? Or writing about on the internet if you do that sort of thing. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, to set your heart and your mind on things above rather than on earthly things. And that means that you're supposed to love and desire and think about and talk about things of the Lord more than you love and desire and think about and talk about the things that will pass away. Whatever you want most and think about most is where your heart is. And where your heart is, there your prayers of thanksgiving will be. If you want to think and pray like Paul, you need to look 
for the signs of God's special grace in the lives of one another. The people sitting next to you, behind you, across the aisle from you. Make it a habit to praise God when you observe evidence that your brother or your sister is growing in maturity. Tell God thank you when you see in other believers an increase of faith, love, and spiritual stamina. Those are the things that Paul's talking about here. So the first dominant feature in Paul's framework is that Paul's that, that Paul gives thanks for the work of God in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. He gives thanks for their growing faith, their growing love, and their faithful endurance. The second dominant feature is this. Paul is confident that Jesus will come back from heaven to earth in judgment to set things right. In verse 5, Paul says that the faithfulness of the Thessalonians under trial is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And he goes on to use some very strong language about judgment and punishment and vengeance, doesn't he? But as a result of their faithfulness, Paul tells them in the second half of verse 5 that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, is Paul saying that their faithful endurance of these believers in Thessalonica has earned them the right to, to enter into the kingdom of God and to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God? No, of course not. God's grace alone is what makes them worthy to enter the kingdom of God. Their worthy obedience, which is what it is, it's worthy obedience. It's possible to obey God, to have worthy obedience. But their worthy obedience is God's work in them. And it is built on not their own merit, not what they've earned, but it's built on what Jesus did for them on the cross. That's the foundation of it. Without that, there could be no worthy obedience. But the worthy obedience that they are building on that foundation of the cross is God's work. Their perseverance under trial is the outworking of God's grace in them. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Any good that you do is God doing it in you, through you. It's not your work, it's God's. It is God who is at work in these Thessalonian Christians, making them worthy to enter the kingdom of God, fundamentally because of the blood of cross of the cross. In verses 5 to 10, Paul is looking ahead to the second coming. When the kingdom of God will be consummated and his enemies will be destroyed and Jesus will reign without contention. The kingdom of God in verse five refers to the final triumph of God at the end of this age. When Jesus returns from heaven, when Paul says kingdom of God here, he's talking specifically about the glory that you and I will enter on the last day. Of course, the kingdom of God has been established now. Christ is reigning as the king of his kingdom now. And sometimes the kingdom of God is used in that way to, to describe what is now, what is already here. But there's also 
a use of it in the New Testament as well as in the Gospels, uh, in Paul as well as the Gospels, where it's talking about that future event where the kingdom will be consummated. And that's what's being talked about here. When Jesus will return to earth and he will raise you and me up from our graves, from the dead, and give us new bodies. At that time, Jesus will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God, it says, and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's what Paul says in verse 9. They will have to endure the same wrath of God that Christ endured on the cross for his people, which is why we don't have to endure it. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they are headed for something else. They are headed for the final glorious kingdom. Their endurance will pay off. As Christians, we don't like to suffer. We don't think of suffering as intrinsically good. But we are prepared to suffer and endure. And when we do, it is a good thing. And we're prepared to do it because our eye is on the goal. As Paul, Paul's eye was here. Our eye is on the end. We see that and we know what it means for how we live now. That's the, that's the nature of Paul's exhortation here. He's pointing to the future and then applying what's going to happen in the future to how they should continue to live and to endure now. Fellow believers, that is also your future. That is your hope. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Or as Paul says here, who know him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10. Paul is confident that God will set everything right for believers. And he prays accordingly. And his confidence has two sides. First, Paul is confident that Jesus will reward believers at the end of this age. Second, Paul is confident that Jesus will punish unbelievers at the end of this age. Jesus will reward his people and punish his enemies. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, Paul is confident that Jesus will reward believers on the last day. In verse 7, Paul says that God's final justice will, quote, grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And then down in verse 10, Paul says that Jesus will come back to be glorified among his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because you believed our testimony to you. See, Paul had a real sense of expectancy and anticipation and longing that we maybe have lost. Do you see how he looked forward to this day? He didn't try to predict when it was going to happen, but he looked forward to this day because of what was going to happen on it. He didn't know when Jesus was coming back, but he looked forward to what would happen on that great and glorious day, a day of reckoning for God's enemies and a day of vindication for God's friends, his people, 
He eagerly anticipated the Lord's return and his anticipation shaped his prayers. And so do you look forward to that day, to the return of Jesus in glory? Do you look forward to that day when he will come back and and raise you from the dead? Give you a new body and make everything right with his enemies and our enemies. How often does this future event make it into your prayers? Paul anticipated this event all the time. It was basic to his thought and his theology that undergirded his faith and his prayers. But I fear that maybe most of us hardly ever think about the last day and its implications for how we live today. We know it's going to happen. We believe it's going to happen. We confess every week that it's going to happen. But is it a truth that really transforms our faith and our piety and our prayers? And a loss of this anticipation is great. It means that instead of laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, we are more easily seduced into devoting our time and our energy and our money to the things around us that will pass away. Paul's thoughts and prayers were controlled by his confidence that Jesus will one day return And make things right. He will give believers their reward. And unbelievers their punishment. But there was another side to Paul's confidence. That Jesus will come back to set things right. It's not just reward for believers. As I've hinted at already. Paul is confident that Jesus will punish his enemies. And that's in verse 6. God considers it just. Paul says. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 8 says that on the last day God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God will be the great avenger. On the last day. When Jesus comes back. He will take vengeance. On those who do not know him. He will afflict his enemies. They will suffer. They will be cast out of his presence. Paul says. Away from his glory. Forever. How often do you think about Jesus. As the avenger. How much does. The vengeance of Jesus shape your piety and your prayers and your theology. Many Christians, many Christian theologians, many Christian pastors have no place for a Jesus who will come back to punish those who did not believe in him, who did not receive him. They have no place for God's retribution against his enemies. They want a Jesus who is full of grace and forgiveness, and who does not inflict eternal suffering on anyone. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on the notion of retribution, God's retribution. God's nature requires 
this kind of retribution that Paul's talking about here against evil, against sin. The holiness of God cannot just overlook sins. When evil occurs, God must punish it. God can't turn a blind eye to evil. He must deal with it specifically and directly. He can't sweep it under the rug. That would go against who he is, his nature as God. God is not only a God of love and mercy, he is also a God of wrath and retribution. We have to accept that. We have to believe that. God is perfect in love. He is love. He's also perfect in holiness. God cannot compromise his holiness any more than he can compromise his loving kindness. If God forgave sin without also punishing that same sin, then he would be unjust according to his own standards, not ours. He would be unholy. Without retribution, God's eternal moral order would collapse. Righteous judges must give righteous verdicts. God must inflict vengeance on sin. He must cast away sin from his presence. God's infinite holiness demands retribution. But thanks be to God that his infinite love sent his son to the cross to absorb all of the retribution that you deserve for your sin. You are forgiven. Fully and freely. Because God sent his son for you. Gave him for you. You're not forgiven because he's just overlooking it. Or deciding not to take it seriously. No, you are forgiven because Jesus took your sin. He bore your sin. It was his burden on his shoulders, on his back, on the cross. He took your punishment. He took the suffering that you had coming. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took your sin on the cross so that you could be right with God. God could not have forgiven you without dealing with your sin. His holiness would not allow it to happen. You see, your sins and my sins are no less punishable, no less deserving of punishment than the sins of those who will be punished forever. Their sins aren't worse than our sin. You're only forgiven because those sins have been dealt with, they've been paid for. Jesus paid for all your sins on the cross. You see, the cross, when we think about judgment, we think about wrath, we think about punishment, and then we think about love and mercy. We think of maybe two sides of God, or we we don't know how they go together. Maybe we think that they're at odds. But you see, here's how it works. The cross is proof that God is love, and the cross is proof that God demands retribution. If he didn't demand it, then Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. It's proof of both. The cross proves that God is both a God of judgment and a God 
of love, a God of vengeance and a God of grace. The cross is where God's mercy and God's wrath are displayed at the same time. In all of their fullness and in all their glory, they're both glorious. At the cross, in that single event, God demonstrated his hatred of sin and his love for his people at the same time. Thanks be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in closing, I'm going to pray for you, for us, using Paul's words at the end of this passage. Let's pray together. To this end, God, I pray for all of the saints at Christ the King Church that you, our God, may make us worthy of your calling and that you may fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power, not ours, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and so that we may be glorified in Jesus according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And now let's give to God his tithes and our offerings that go beyond the tithe.